Good morning, church. Uh, It is our second week of this series on what is church. And uh, this week, our topic is the church is called to worship. Um, So some of you might be thinking like I thought when I saw this topic, why have they chosen Meg? Um, You know, maybe it would have been more sense to pick someone from the worship team, someone who could play an instrument, someone who could at least sing in tune. You know, I can't even clap and sing at the same time, so why am I the one talking about worship? Now, of course, you all know that worship isn't all about singing. Um, It's not all about making music. Um, But when we talk about worship, our minds go straight to that place. They go straight to the sung worship uh, that we see on a Sunday morning. And I want to challenge that thought process, not because I don't like singing worship, because I really do, and not because I don't think that sung worship is important, because I really do, but because I want to know what worship really is all about. So John very helpfully sent me some verses when I was preparing, um, and the one that really stuck out to me was this one. It's Romans 12, verse 1, and it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. This is your true and proper worship. Sounds really good, doesn't it? (laughs) What does that mean? Uh, So I thought, how do we find out what does that mean? Let's go to the best example of worship that I can think of which would be Jesus. So Jesus walked the earth and literally worshipped the whole time. Uh, He surrendered himself to the Father. Um, Everything he did, everything in the Bible, uh, was him stepping out in worship. He lived it out. So when he was teaching parables to the disciples and to those who were listening, he was teaching it, but also showing them the hands-on experience. But our culture tells us that we can live this kind of coffee shop style church, where we come to church, we sing some songs, we read the Bible, maybe we even get a bit excited, maybe we even do some crying, maybe we even chat to God and really mean stuff. But then when we look out the window and we look at the real world, we just somehow forget. And we think that we can live a full and proper life from inside the safety of our church walls. Now, of course, there is importance in being alone with God, being alone and worshipping, being in fellowship and worshipping with other Christians. That's really important. And when we see Jesus, we see him worshipping just like that. But we also see him worshipping with his hands and feet. He prays for the sick. He sits with the beggars. He raises people back to life. He does all of those things. And then he taught about it. When we sing songs like, I will give you all my worship, Do we know what that really means? It means going through and pushing and allowing the Holy Spirit to push us into uncomfortable situations where it's not going to be glamorous, it's not going to be inspiring, but we've got to hang on. We've got to be committed to him. We have to learn that pure worship really is, because it's more than a song, it's more than a sound. Even if we don't see the reward this side of eternity, we've got to hang on. We've got to be those who tie our hearts to God. Because worship is when we tie our hearts to his. It's a picture of commitment, of humility, of surrender. It's so that our hearts beat at the same rhythm of his heart. 
It made me think of um, cars. So I used to have a car that the battery would die all the time. So I became really good at doing this jump starting thing where you wire up the two car batteries and the stronger car helps the weaker car get going. That's what worship is. We tie our hearts to God so that our weak hearts can beat to the rhythm of his stronger heart. So that when he nudges you to the right, we go to the right. When he nudges to the left, we go to the left. Let's flick to an Old Testament story. Cain and Abel. I'm just going to read you a couple of verses from Genesis 4. I'm going to read verses 3 to 7. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So when we look at Cain and Abel, we see two offerings, two offerings of worship. They both look like worship on the outside, but it's about what's inside. And for one of them, it was just a token. It didn't mean anything. Cain and Abel were given the same opportunity to bring an offering to God. It looked different because they were different people, but it was an equal playing field. And Abel chose to worship, and Cain chose to try and slip something past God. There is no such thing as half worship or almost worship. Worship either is or it isn't. It's real or it's fake. It's black or it's white. There's so many things in this world that can be gray, but with worship, it's not. It either is or it isn't. You can't pull a fast one on God. God is gracious. Of course, he gives us loads of opportunities to try again, to try again. And historically, uh, we look at Cain and we think he's a terrible person. And I thought what I'd do is I'd find a picture to show you that whenever we think of Cain, we think of him with the rock and he's gonna bash his brother's head. And I thought I'll just go on Google search. And then I was overwhelmed at how right I was. So we've got picture after picture of Cain bashing Abel, often naked, I don't know why they're naked, but often naked, bashing Abel in the head. These are all the pictures I could find of Cain and Abel. Because we look at Cain and we think he's a tyrant, he's angry, he's bitter, he's a demon almost, he's killing his brother. But it didn't start like that. It started with a simple thing in his heart and he just thought maybe he could just slip something small past God and, and God might not notice. Sometimes we think we can slip things past God. And yes, God is gracious. I mean, the Israelites tried again and again for 40 years and God still stuck with them. God never gives up. His love is always sufficient. His grace is always sufficient. We could spend our whole life trying to find out what it truly means to worship and God would wait. Cain brought something. It's not like he didn't bring anything. It's not like he didn't show up at church and didn't try. But what he brought was religion when God wanted relationship. So is the thing that you're bringing to God, is your something, is your offering, is your life about worship or is it about religion? Worship is surrender. Worship costs. Worship is obedience. It's about looking out and saying, God, I hear what you're saying and I'm going to do it. Religion is looking at someone else 
and thinking I can copy what they're doing. You know, that worked quite well for them, so I'm just going to do the same thing, even though it doesn't cost me anything. That's religion. And let me tell you, God only accepts one of those. Only one of those comes from a deep heart place. The other one is surface level. Let's jump back to Jesus. This time we're going to look at a story um, when he's in Bethany. He's at the house of Simon the leper. Great nickname. I uh, don't think I'd want it. And you see the woman, we all know the story, she throws herself at the feet of Jesus and she pours his expensive oil, all of it, all over his feet. And she wipes his feet with her hair. It was pure worship. Jesus saw it. Jesus understood. It cost her everything, her livelihood, all her money. In that moment, she knew she could never go back. She wanted to be with Jesus. She wanted to worship him. But the crowd around her, the religious leaders around her, the disciples even, they looked and they saw the surface level. They saw a prostitute with her hair down, which meant that she was open for business, and they saw a surface. But Jesus saw heart deep. He looked and he saw that she was worshipping. The disciples go on in that story and they ask a question. And they say, why? Why this waste? Pause and think, what does that mean about their teacher, about their rabbi, about Jesus? What does that represent? What are they thinking about Jesus? They're looking at him and they're going, come on, he's a great teacher, but why all of that? Like, that's too much. You can't do all of that. But what is God worth to you? Is he worth all of that? The problem with the disciples' question is it devalued the woman's act because it devalued the presence of Jesus. It was just too much. Worship is not on the surface. It's inside. It's an expression of what's going on inside, a reflection of where our heart is. And you can't fake your heart with God. Now, we can play plenty of comparison games about what worship looks like for one person and how it should look for another, but God doesn't. God makes us all originals, and he wants an original offering of worship. That maybe is the scariest thing. He wants me to be original to me. In our culture, we look at other people and we say, I'm going to try what they do because they look kind of cool when they do that. I want to make sure that I'm doing it right. I want to make sure that I'm doing something that works, but it won't work for you because God made you unique. He made the desires in your heart unique, and he wants you to worship out of that uniqueness. God looks at your inside before he accepts what you offer him on the outside. The outward expression should match the inward desires. It goes past the music, past the songs. If you stick with God long enough, if you tie your heart with God long enough, you'll realize he's asking you for more than just a song, more than just something on a Sunday morning. He's asking you for everything. It's going to cost. Your worship is between God and you. It's not between me and you or you and John or even you and your friends. Does your offering say, he is Lord? Are you Cain or are you Abel? Music in and of itself uh, isn't worship. I've said that already. Uh, but music is an expression of worship. Worship is the heart going up toward God in gratitude, in thanksgiving, and we sing all of those good words when we sing worship. It gives an expression to that love, to that feeling. But true and proper worship will cost us everything. It will cost you what you do with your life, with your time, the friends you have, where you live even. 
It's about intentionally removing the blockages in our hearts that stop us seeing God, that stop us following after God, that stop us worshipping God. We can't be passive about it. It's not about lying there on the floor with your arms out, out, outstretched. It's about aggressively and intentionally, tenaciously searching after God, following God. It takes guts, it takes time, it takes discipline, it takes everything. It's not for the weak. I'm going to look at Gideon, because Gideon wasn't weak. Um, I'm not going to read it, but you can find the story in Judges 7. Um, it begins with Gideon getting up early in the morning, and he looks around, and he finds himself and all of the Israelite army are in a place called Harod, the spring of Harod. And what we need to know about Harod is that it is a place of trembling, a place of fear. The Israelites have found themselves in a place of fear. Now, I don't know your journey. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know where you are today listening to this. But with everything that's going on in our world at the moment, with everything we're having to work through, I bet quite a few of you are in a place of fear. And the Israelites, it says, they actually set up camp in the place of fear. They had every intention of staying there. And the Bible goes on to say that the Midian army, the army that God had called the Israelites to attack, they were in a place called the Hill of Morah. And the Hill of Morah, or Morah, however you want to say it, means teacher. So Gideon and the Israelites, they're in a place of hiding, a place of fear, a place of trembling. And in the distance, they see the army that God has called them to fight in a place called teacher. You see, what we need to learn sometimes is beyond the sphere of our fear. And sometimes it looks a bit like our enemy. So what do we do? Many of us retreat, we hide, uh, we pretend the enemy isn't there, we put up camp in the valley of fear, and we pretend it's not happening. But the Lord says to Gideon, you've got too many warriors, you've got to get rid of some of your people. And so he basically says, guys, if you're afraid, go home. And 22,000 people left because they were afraid. You've got to be prepared that when you stand up for God, when you begin stepping out and worship for God, you might lose some followers. Gideon did. They might be Instagram followers. They might be real followers. You're going to lose some, though, because it's not for the weak. So 22,000 of them go home. Gideon's left with 1,000 who are willing to fight. Are you one of them? Are you willing to fight? Or is your sofa just a bit too comfy today? Are you willing to fight for your home? Are you willing to fight for your family? Are you willing to fight for Ponteclean? Some of you are, just like some of them were. But you know what God said? You've still got too many people. I want you to go down to the stream and test the men. I want you to see who kneels and laps it up like a dog and who scoops it up into their hands. And once he'd done that test, there was only 300 left. Gideon started with over 35,000 men and it was reduced to 300. But hey, how many of you know that uh, when you've got a little, it's much with God? When you've got God on your side, you've already got the majority. And God says to Gideon, for I've given you the victory over them, but if you are afraid to attack. It's a funny statement. God said, you've got the victory, you can have it. But if you are afraid, God knew where Gideon was. God knew Gideon's fear. 
Gideon's over there worrying about what the Midianites are going to do. But actually, what he finds out is the Midianites are over there worrying about what Gideon was going to do. Because God sends Gideon down into the army camp with, with a friend. And they go in and they start listening and they hear one of the Midianite army talk about a dream. And they say that they saw a loaf of barley. I don't know what a loaf of barley is, but there's a bread roll. Um, and it's rolling down the hill and it crushes the whole camp. And that's what the Midianites were fearful of. That's what they thought was going to happen because they knew how powerful God was. God's got enough bread for you. He had enough bread for Gideon. And Gideon hears this and he falls down and worships God. Because he hears that the enemy is more afraid of him than he is of them. Sometimes God will take us down into the valley so that he can teach us about the victory. He took Gideon down into the valley and he said, you know what, I've already got the victory here. Like, why are you afraid? Sometimes God sends you into a low place to teach you about his strength. And when we're faced with those difficulties, when we're faced with those enemies, we've got a choice. Worry or worship. And whether we worry or worship is dependent upon the way we feel about who is in control in that situation. It's determined by your perspective. How do you see the enemy? How do you see that difficulty? How do you see that struggle in your life? How do you see the days ahead? How do you see the empty blanks where you just don't know what's going to happen? You can worry about it. You can worry about what's ahead. Or you can worship because God has already got the victory. In fact, where you're going, you already have a reputation because you've got God. And if the Lord is on your side, then who can be against you? And so Gideon goes back to his army and he's all hyped up now. He knows what's happening. He says, guys, grab those clay pots, get those torches, put them in the pots, get your trumpets, follow me. We're going. Um, and they head out in the dark and they get around the camp. And Gideon says, watch what I do. So if you're a leader, or you think God's calling you into leadership, or you're a leader in your house, in your friendship group, we're all leaders somewhere. People are watching you. People are watching to see how you respond. People are watching to see how you worship. And as a leader, you've got to go first. You've got to make sure that your posture is to worship and not to worry. You've got to make sure that, I don't know, when you're in church, you're the first to clap. You're the first to raise your hand. You're not waiting to see what everyone else is doing. You're the leader. You show them how to worship. You go first. Leaders go first. The people are watching. Gideon says, keep your eye on me. And at the perfect moment, he splits them into different groups that surround the enemy camp. Remember, he's only got 300 people. And it says in the Bible that the Midianites were so vast, there were so many of them, that you couldn't even count their camels. And he splits them up around, gets them all into their perfect position. Now, some of us, we've got to get in the position. Some of us, we've been sitting down for too long. We've got to get up and get into the right position for the battle. We need to stand up and be ready. And when the Israelites blew their horns and they smashed their, their clay pots, um, the Midianites began fighting themselves because their praise and worship of the Israelites was confusing them. Worship confuses the enemy. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. And the Midianites, they end up killing themselves completely. And what I love about this is that it begins with brokenness. It starts with an act of brokenness because the first thing Gideon does is he says, break those jars open. And when they break the jars open, the flame becomes visible. 
and that flame is the Holy Spirit. When we're willing to say, God, I am broken, I don't have it all together, I don't know what I'm doing, that's when we let the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. God uses broken things. God uses broken homes, broken dreams. It doesn't matter how broken you think it is, God can use it. God, I don't have the right weapons for this. I don't have the right strength to go into this battle. When we admit that, that's when God comes through. Because in those jars of clay are the torches. And it wasn't until the jars were broken that you could see the flame. Many of us want to experience the Spirit of God. We want to feel the Holy Spirit moving. But we're not willing to come and be broken in the presence of God. We don't want to be humble. We don't want to surrender. We want to be British. We want to pretend it's all okay. But I want my heart to be broken. I don't want to have it all together. I don't want all my ducks in, the row, in a row. I want to be broken in God's presence. I want to think less of me and more of him. I want to be broken. And then they took the torches and they raised them up. And the torch was always a symbol of the presence of God. Remember, they follow a pillar of fire in the desert. They knew what the fire meant. And they hold up the torch in their left hand. Side note, left hand, weakest hand. So they take their weak hand, their weakness, and they hold up the presence of God. And then with their other hand, they hold the trumpet up high. And a trumpet in the Bible is always a symbol of declaration. And they say, this is the victory of God. I've got the presence of God in my weakness. I've got the victory of God here. And God says one more thing. Speak the name of the Lord. A sword for the Lord. And as they speak out, the presence of the Lord, the victory of the Lord, and the voice of God, that's when worship happened. That's when the Holy Spirit broke through. That's when victory came. And then they chased the Midianites, the ones that hadn't died, to a place called Beth Barah. And Beth Barah meant the house of the covenant, the house of purity, the house of clarity, or the house of safety. If you're interested, the, uh, the enemy army went somewhere else. Um, and that was a thorny place, a loss of virtue. But the Israelites find themselves in a place of safety. Look at the progression. Place of fear, place of teaching, to a place of safety. And the only thing that links them together is worship. So I don't know if you're looking for a place of safety today, but I know what the path is to get there. Worship God. When we begin to worship, victory begins to happen. So stop worrying about the cost. Stop worrying about what other people will think. Stop worrying about if you're doing it the right way or not and surrender everything to God. It's not easy, but if we stick it out, we're going to see the victory. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you um, that you have already laid out the victory for us. I thank you that when we're willing to tie our hearts to yours, that you're willing to guide us into that victory. And I just pray right now for, for everyone listening, whether it's today or in weeks to come, Father, I pray that they would tie their hearts to yours, that they would worship you completely and fully, and that they would find the place of safety. Amen.